0: And thank you for that. Uh, First Chronicles chapter twenty-one this evening, please. First Chronicles chapter twenty-one. I was just thinking how music impacts us when we were singing that that last song, a Ron Hamilton song, my introduction to Ron Hamilton music actually came through the uh, school association to which we belong. Years ago, we used to have an annual teacher's convention down in Kansas City. They'd have it at a large hotel, and hundreds of people would come and fill a banquet room, and we just usually sang Ron Hamilton songs, and boy, just like that, I was back at the Adams Mark Hotel, so... Interesting. Let's go ahead and stand, please. First Chronicles 21, <clears throat> beginning in verse number 1, will be our passage this evening. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. And bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people an hundred times so many more as they be. But, my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed, went throughout all Israel, and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a a thousand, thousand, and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly, because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Choose thee, either three years famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Onan, the Jebusite. And David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him and hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David And went out at the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee. Let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for a meat offering. I give it all. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. <clears throat> Excuse me. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And let's pray. Father, again and as always, we are honored to hold your word in our hands and indebted to your spirit for instruction and help. Father, I do not wish to abuse your word before your people. Help us, I pray, to understand the passage tonight. To think about it rightly and pray that we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, <clears throat> to this point in the Chronicle of David, which a reminder, the book of Chronicles, although it covers similar events as Samuel and Kings, comes many centuries later in its writing. <clears throat> written specifically to the post-exile nation of Israel. And until we get to chapter 21, David's time as king, his coming to the power as the kingdom, as the king in his reign as king, really follows the trajectory of one of our hymns, from victory unto victory. And David has just apparently done everything right. And made all the right decisions and won all the right battles and paid all the right respects to the Lord. And then we come to chapter 21. Which, if I can illustrate it this way without being irreverent or disrespectful... almost appears as if it's one of those hidden meaning puzzles. Not that God is hiding things, but there are many things in the story that matter, but they matter not because they're the main point, they matter because they're helping us to understand what I think is the main point of the passage. The parallel passage to 1 Chronicles 21 is 2 Samuel 24. We're not really going to look much at it. I'll make a couple of references to it. Chronicles ignores all of the ugly parts of David's reign. For instance, if we were to go back and read 2 Samuel 11 through 23, that section, we would read about David and Bathsheba. And we would read about the civil war that followed. And we would read about the murder of his son Absalom. We would read about the revolt by some of Saul's relatives against David's reign. We would read about a famine that came upon the land because King Saul, who has been dead for 30 years, broke the word that Joshua gave to the Gibeonites centuries before that fell into David's lap to address a genuinely ugly period of time. David's reign is looked at in its entirety really a mixed bag of good and bad. But the chronicler passes over all of that. He understands that the reader is smart enough to read and understand where David and Bathsheba fit and all that came from that. But he does not revisit that. It is not essential. He is painting a picture of a, for a restored people, the kingdom that they once had, that God is holding out. We will come to this. That God is holding out in prospect that has yet to come. And yet, this account, what one man has called the senseless census, this account is, is recorded. This black mark is recorded. Now, were we simply approaching the passage academically, <clears throat> were we students sitting in a classroom trying to get to the bottom of things, we would make note of what appear to be some inconsistencies in the telling of the two stories. Chronicles 21.1 begins by telling you that it was Satan. Second Chronicles 24 begins by telling you it was God. Never is it clearly explained to us exactly what the problem is in taking a census. There is a God-ordained census that begins and ends the book of Numbers. God said count, and they counted, and then they went into the wilderness, and they lived there for almost 40 years, and when they were coming out, God said count, and they counted. There is no command that says, Thou shalt not count. And yet it is obvious, folks, from the entire story that David committed a great sin, and he was aware that he committed a great sin in taking the census. And we're still talking about exactly what the nature of the sin is that David committed. Not only that, were we dealing with the passage academically, we would have to note that both Samuel and Chronicles contain two different accounts. I mean, two different numerical counts. How many people are there? Two different books, two different numbers. But again, folks, those are the kind of things that we tend to latch onto that we want to discuss, but they are not the main part of the story Why after chapter upon chapter upon chapter of David being very deferential to the Lord, of David taking careful steps to honor God, why do we have this blunder and why are we remembering it here? So let me make this proposal to you. This is going to be the theme that I will argue is the main point of the chapter. That the main point of the chapter is not the census at all. But the main point of the chapter is God's mercy. And that David's kingdom does not exist because David is the best of the best. And it doesn't even exist because David is an upright and dedicated man. And he is. And it doesn't exist because David is a heroic warrior, and he is. And it doesn't exist because not only is David a heroic warrior, he's a tremendous musician, and he is. The kingdom exists because God is a God of mercy. And at any given time, in any given group of people, in any given assembly of people, if God wanted to go nitpicking, he could no doubt find enough to disqualify anybody. So let's see if there's any validation of my thesis in the passage itself. Verses 1 through 8 make the point that mercy is needed because God is angry. Mercy is needed because God is angry. Chronicles tells us that Satan, literally the translation of the word Satan is adversary, the enemy, stood up against Israel and provoked David to number them. Samuel tells us that it was God who did this. I don't think it's a gigantic theological dilemma, folks. Satan has long been God's instrument. When Job, right, we have clear testimony of that in the book of Job. That God gave Job rain. And there are instances, folks, maybe a little bit mysterious to us, but there are instances in the Old Testament in particular where God has almost, it appears, consulted with the power of darkness. Who will go down and deceive this prophet? Who will do that, says the Lord. I will do this and I will do this. Okay, you go. So there's no great theological mystery here, folks. No great theological conundrum. No dilemma that we cannot resolve. No obvious contradiction in the scriptures. <clears throat> 2 Samuel 24:1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, <clears throat> Go. Number Israel and Judah. Now here's the point, folks. Here's the point that we don't want to miss as we come to this and scratch our heads and go, okay, who's doing what here, right? We have the information that we need. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God was angry at the nation. God was angry at the nation. It is one nation, and there is an anger that the Lord has, folks, that precedes the census. Right on the one hand, the census further angers God, but let us not miss that God is angry in, with Israel in the first place. And if we would go, well, why is God angry with Israel? Well, we're not told specifically, but I would take you back to Second Samuel chapter eleven through twenty-one. To argue that there are plenty of reasons for God to be mad at his people. Mad at David for his sin with Bathsheba. Mad with his people for the civil revolt that followed. Mad over the handling of the Gibeonites. Mad with the people of Saul who will not submit to their rightful king. One of the things, folks, we always want to remember about God's anger is that it is not like human anger. It is never emotional and irrational. It is never for no apparent reason. It is never without cause. So the fact that we can't take a string, so to speak, and tie it from the anger of the Lord, the Lord was angry with Israel, and go, and here's why doesn't mean that there is an injustice in his anger. It only means that we don't know all the story. <clears throat> and part of the way to think about this, and I don't think that I'm stretching the point, is to note that the giving, the taking of the census, is one of the ways <clears throat> for God's anger to be known by the Israelites. How would they know? And, of course, God could act and does act, but in this case, God acts by inciting David to take accounting of the people. So back to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Mercy is necessary because God is angry. And so David orders the census And Joab, and if you read through the accounts of Joab, folks, he is far from the most spiritually-minded Jew that David interacts with. Joab goes, you know, the king, this is really a bad idea. And he makes two points in trying to persuade David. Number one is that the blessings of God are abundant and not ended. And point number two is that everybody is for David. It doesn't matter how many people there are. They're all on David's side. But but David will not be dissuaded. And, of course, we understand why David will not be dissuaded. And so David insists that the census be taken. And so Joab does because, folks, on the one hand, this story drips with divine activity. And on the other hand, this story drips with human activity. What do you do when you are ordered to do something you don't want to do? You do it half-heartedly. And so Joab takes a half-hearted census And I put it that way because of verse number 6. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them. And so that we're not left wondering why they weren't counted. For the king's word was abominable to Joab. Joab was disgusted by the whole thing. The whole thing repulsed him. Completely unnecessary. But the king is given an order. And orders must be obeyed. And then God's anger was further incited, verse number seven, and God was displeased with this thing. And I think that the context indicates that this thing is the taking of the census, not Joab's partial count. Therefore, he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I've sinned greatly. So why is mercy needed? Mercy is needed because a righteous God is angry. Secondly, the text reveals to us in verses 8 through 17 that mercy is requested because guilt is admitted. David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Mercy is needed because God is angry and mercy is requested because David is guilty. 2 Samuel 24.10 tells us that David's heart smote him after he numbered the people. And again, folks, I would point out how just how thoroughly human the story is in the telling. Joab doesn't want to do what he's told, so he doesn't do it well. David, in typical human fashion, does what is wrong, and then is guilty for doing the wrong, and how easy it is for us to feel guilty and conviction after we've done wrong. Oh, if we could only feel that conviction before we did the wrong. But we don't do that very well. Do we? I mean, right? maybe the older we get, the better we get at it. But in general, we're much more inclined to do something and then go, Boy, that was terrible. I'm sorry that I did it. Then we are to go, I'm going to be sorry for doing this, so I won't. And again, we're relaying the passages side by side and working through them in comparison. We would note that in the Chronicles account, David is much more active in accepting the blame for what happened than he actually is in the, in the Samuel account. And so David requests that God, the way, it's tra- the way it's put in our Bibles there, is that God do away the iniquity, verse number 8. Do away the iniquity. And the idea means to pass it through, to get rid of it, It would be a word that you would use to describe somebody who's going from one room to another. David wants the sin removed. That's what he's after. Get the sin out of here. Please get the sin out of here. And then we have this very curious response on the part of God. And it is curious, folks. David says, Lord, this is a terrible thing that I've done. I've done something really bad. Please deal with my sin. And God said, all right, here, here are your options. Here are your options. Option number one is to have three years of famine. Option number two is to have three months in losing battles against your enemy. For three months, I will withdraw my hand of blessing from your soldiers, and they will suffer. Or three days. Three days directly under my judgment. Take your pick. It is not an easy decision, is it? And, And David himself, folks, lest anybody think that David should have chosen A or B or C, and it would be a no-brainer were it us. David says in verse number 13, to the seer, to the prophet, to his friend, I am in a great strait. This is a hard place to be. Now what's going on here? And again, let me suggest this to you, and this is not original with me, but I wish it was. Here is an opportunity for us to see David's theology in action. One writer noted that we need our best theology on our darkest days. So here are the options. <clears throat> three months of famine, or th- I mean three years of famine, three months of your enemies, or three days with the Lord. You notice the way David thinks. Verse number 13, David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me now fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Why that? Right? Because his options were, and of course we understand, as David understood, that none of these were completely absent of God. But option number one was natural disaster. Option number two was military disaster. Option number three was... Divine disaster. But the Lord, right? Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for great are his mercies. And see, I I say again, folks, that the, the story in the chapter is really about mercy. Why did David need it? Why did Israel need it? God was angry. Why did David pursue it? David was guilty. And, and you have to acknowledge your guilt to pursue mercy, to cry out for mercy. Thirdly, mercy is provided because God is merciful. Mercy is provided. Now, it might, again, not appear at first glance that God is really being very merciful here. 70,000 people die in this plague, folks. 70,000 people, that's not an insignificant number. That's a sizable percentage of the nation of Israel. And again, before we get all angry at God for acting in what appears to be apparent injustice, let me remind you that the passage begins by pointing out that God is angry with Israel. It's not that God is angry with David and he takes it out on Israel God is angry with Israel. He takes it out on Israel. 2 Samuel 24.1 Look, if you would, at verses 15, 16, and 17. And God sent an angel into Jerusalem, unto Jerusalem to destroy it, right? So the, right? Because Israel, and the census is from Dan to Beersheba, which Israel is a long country north to south, narrow country east to west and so its orientation is dan at the far north best sheba at the far south just like we would say los angeles and new york right coast to coast that's the point dan to beersheba coast to coast and god has visited this plague upon the nation because his anger is directed toward the nation and now he moves into jerusalem capital city And God sent an angel into Jerusalem to destroy it, and as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil. See, David's theology was spot on. And he said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now here's where, again, it starts to get really interesting, and the divine element emerges. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord. He saw him stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. They saw the angel of the Lord. And David then again in verse number 17 begs mercy on the basis of his personal accountability. This was me, not them. And then you get to verse number 18. And the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You see, folks, here's the reality right this is a first chronicles 21 takes a single i think incident david's taking of the census to magnify a much larger theological principle the israelites needed mercy because god was angry and it was good that they saw their guilt, and requested mercy. And when the mercy came, and the mercy does, folks, notice the way that God deals with it. Go build an altar. Go build an altar. The reality is that in our relationship with God, simple sorrow and repentance are not enough. They're good, But they are not enough. They don't don't resolve the far larger issue of our guilt before God and the righteousness of his anger. They just don't. There must be an altar, there must be a sacrifice. Reconciliation comes only through the shedding of blood. And so David goes and he buys the site of the threshing floor. The man is a Jebusite, verse number 18, and the Jebus is one of the earliest Bible names for the city of Jerusalem. When David approaches Ornan and explains to him that he wants to buy this particular site of land, Ornan is reluctant to sell it to the king. I will just give it to you. I will give you the land. I will give you the the cattle so that you may have a sacrifice. And the, the wooden yokes that they wear you may have for the firewood. And David says there will be none of that here. There will be none of that here. I'm not going to make an offering to God out of something that doesn't cost me something. There's a great principle there. Not a you-can-work-your-way-into-salvation principle, but should be a willingness to pay a price, a willingness to have one's own skin in the game, so to speak, to be on good ground with the Lord. David is not buying his salvation, but he is going to be a full participant in his worship. And then you get to verse number 26, right? And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar burnt offering. Right? So you have have all of the ritual of the Mosaic covenant, the burnt offering and the peace offering. We have sinned against God. Here are the required sacrifices. God, accept our sacrifices, and you have fire from heaven come down and signal that they are accepted. And then, folks, and then, verse number 27, And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheet thereof. Because the angel is standing there with his sword in his hand. Or if you like 21st century imagery, with his gun drawn. And he is simply waiting for the order from his Lord about what to do. And then we're told kind of how this comes about to be this way because all of the normal religious accoutrements are at Gibeon. And David was afraid to go to Gibeon. He didn't want to take the time or he didn't want to make the move because there stands the angel with the sword in his hand, and David is looking at this, and the elders are looking at this. And David then says, verse number one of chapter 22 This is the house of the Lord God, this is where it will be built. This is where this will become the central feature of Israeli worship. This is where the altar will be, right here, Ornan's threshing floor. So, again, I think, folks, that the great reminder is, and the attention now will turn briefly to the temple to the construction of the temple and then to the practice in the temple. But before we get to that and before we get it really nailed down, right? Because David has been waging military battles and he has taken his winnings from those battles and he has given it to the house of the Lord. And he wants to build this house and He's had a conversation with God about that, and God said, Not you, but Solomon. But instead, I will make you a house, an enduring dynasty. So let us not forget, folks. Let us not forget that all of this hinges upon God's mercy. God's mercy. All that we have, all that we enjoy in salvation, all that we anticipate in the kingdom, all of the blessings that we will ever get or ever have are all ultimately undergirded by the fact that God is merciful to us. Mercy was needed because God was angry, and it was requested when the people saw their guilt. And it was provided for by a God who is merciful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for the godliness of King David. A sinner like the rest of us, but very mature and perceptive in understanding you. May we understand you and your mercy. May we rejoice in it and appreciate it. Your mercies are very great to us. Very great indeed. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, as always, thank you for being here. A couple of announcements. and.